0: Welcome to BIV Today, the daily business podcast from the Business in Vancouver newspaper and from BIV.com. I'm Haley Wooden. Today on this show, a look at the political tensions and trade challenges between South Korea and Japan. On September 11th, BIV's Business Excellence Series is back with our Women in Business panel. You can hear from business leaders on the topics of equal pay and how successful women rise through the ranks. The event will take place at the Vancouver Club. I'll be moderating, and I hope many of you can join us. Visit BIV.com slash B-E-S dash W-I-B for details. And BIV is accepting nominations for a number of awards programs. These include the BC CEO Awards, Influential Women in Business, and 40 Under 40. You can visit BIV.com slash events for details. Every other week, we take a deeper look at the economics, policies, issues, and politics of the world's fastest growing region in our Asia 360 segment. Today, tensions and trade challenges between two of Canada's trade partners, South Korea and Japan. Jeff Reeves, Vice President of Research at the Asia Pacific Foundation of Canada, joins me for the discussion. Thanks so much for coming on.
1: Thanks for having me.
0: I know that some of the issues involved in this are long-standing ones. Tell me where these issues really began.
1: Yeah, absolutely. Um, so right now what we're seeing within the, uh, the Moon Jae-in administration is uh, revisiting two pretty significant historical issues with Japan, one of which is much more rooted in identity politics and the other that has uh, trade and economic uh, implications. So the first is starting in around 2018, uh, President Moon came forward and uh, Drew into question a 2015 agreement that the Abe administration had signed with the previous administration, the President Park's administration, around the issue of uh, comfort women, which is kind of an unfortunate euphemism for talking about women that were forced into sexual slavery during the Japanese occupation of Korea from 1910 to 1945. So uh, in 2015, the South Korean and Japanese governments came together and made an agreement that said this issue would be put to to rest. The Japanese government issued a formal apology and they also allocated almost about 10 million U.S. dollars to a a reconciliation fund. So Japan, from the Japanese perspective, this issue was finished. Um, But uh, President Moon has come forward and said, actually, this was a state to state agreement that didn't take into the considerations of the suffering caused of the women that were involved in these issues. And as such, it's no longer something that his administration is going to stand by. Hmm. So he's come forward and said that there's a possibility South Korea will return the money that Japan provided for reconciliation, uh, that it will um, nullify this agreement, and that it will no longer stand by this as being kind of a final solution to what continues to be a very thorny identity politics issue.
0: And what has Japan's response been?
1: Um, Japan's response in this in this uh, instance has been rather muted. It's um, objected to the idea of having to revisit what it thought was going to be a final solution to this problem um, in 2015. Uh, there's a long sense in Japan that uh, despite the fact that Japan has put forward what it sees are apologies, or it's tried to make um, very clear that it it is uh, um, has a lot of regret over what happened in the past, that apologies are never enough. And this is another instance, I think, from a Japanese perspective of, of saying, hey, we, we went halfway to meet you, we met you in good faith, and once again, we find ourselves in a position of being um, you know, uh, kind of framed as a, an aggressor and it, and it doesn't feel right from a Japanese perspective. So in that sense, they've just kind of registered diplomatic um, disappointments, uh, but on the other issue, they've been much more aggressive.
0: Mm. It's obviously a historical issue in South Korea. It's an emotional one, I'm sure, in many respects. Is it politically charged as well?
1: Absolutely. Uh, And I think, unfortunately, it's been a stumbling block for closer integration between Japan and South Korea, which uh, on paper look like natural allies, right? They're both allied partners with the United States. Their Mm -hmm. economies are incredibly integrated. Um, They both have common understanding of Northeast Asia's strategic environment, its security challenges. So there should be a lot closer partnership between the states. But these kind of history issues and territorial issues, um, territorial disputes over islands that the the South Koreans control called Dokdo, the Japanese claim sovereignty over called Takashima. These are still really important identity politics issues for both sides. But the issue I think that has most implications for, for the economy side is this um, revisiting of uh, compensation around forced labor that has started more seriously in 2018.
0: And what are some of the implications of that?
1: So uh, just a little bit of background. In 2008, a group of South Korean men visited uh, Japan and tried to sue within the Japanese courts for compensation over forced labor during the Japanese um, colonization of, of South Korea, and, and again, from 1910 to 1945. Um, saying that they uh, had never been compensated. The Japanese courts didn't want to hear the case, and so they took it back to South Korea. And in 2018, the South Korean Supreme Court came forward and said these individuals actually could directly sue Japanese entities that were involved in economic activity in South Korea during this period. So they did bring a lawsuit against Japanese companies like Nippon Steel, uh, and And they did win, and the Japanese or excuse me South Korean courts came forward and said that these organizations or these uh, these corporations should compensate the individuals uh, that that were forced into to labor. Mm. From the Japanese perspective, um, although this this is a nominal amount of money we're, we're talking about, each individual is suing for several hundred thousand dollars. Uh, this is unacceptable because they see that this issue was solved during the 1965 normalization of relations when South Korea and Japan uh, came to an agreement over um, compensation to workers, and Japan provided almost 10 billion U.S. in in a modern um, uh, in modern value to the South Koreans directly. Uh, including compensation for these individuals. Uh, And uh, that money was misallocated at the time. The South Korean government actually used it to invest in uh, economic development, which ultimately helped South Korea develop as a a modern economy. But that money didn't make it down to the South Korean workers, which is the, the perspective that the South Koreans are bringing to this case.
0: Does the South Korean government acknowledge its role that it took what was supposed to be compensation and instead invested it in the economy?
1: Absolutely. Uh, and But do stress this fact that this was a state-to-state agreement, again, mm-hmm. focusing on the, the human side of things, which I think isn't entirely appropriate. Once again, saying these individual suffering was not addressed. Uh, while state-to-state agreements might be fine, the political situation has changed over time. South Korea is a very different country than it was in 1965. It has a fundamentally different political structure, much more democratic. Uh, and uh, there is the sense that these individuals uh, were, were cheated out of what was rightfully theirs by, by the state. And that's a, a criticism from a South Korean perspective of their own political past, but it does have implications for the bilateral relationship now.
0: Yeah, tell me a bit about that, because you said these individuals are looking for a few hundred thousand dollars. It's not a lot of money. But what are some of the the bigger issues at stake here now?
1: For for Japan, it's about not revisiting, again, an agreement that it had in the past where it saw to address these issues directly, where it feels that it has, and where it could be in a position in the future, once again, to have to revisit issues that it's already addressed. So it looks back at 1965 and says, this is the marker. So within that uh, agreement, that normalization agreement that South Korea and Japan uh, signed, there is room for mediation on these issues. And Japan has actually approached South Korea within that framework and said, okay, we don't agree, but we we want to talk and we want to solve this bilaterally. The South Korean side wasn't willing to do that. Rather, South Korean um, courts agreed to seize uh, around 30% of Nippon Steel's assets in South Korea, which amount to about $10 million, and said that they would hold on to those assets until such time that that compensation was made available to the South Korean claimants.
0: How has that been interpreted in Japan?
1: So Japan at that point decided to be more aggressive in their response and started to put export controls around some key chemicals, three in particular, that are um, critical to South Korea's domestic uh, manufacturing around um, memory chips in particular, the chips that go into phones and computers. So it's a a pretty significant export control at this point. Uh, I think Goldman Sachs came out with some figures that say if they stay in place, it could cost the South Korean economy about $20 per year. Wow. Uh, Samsung, for instance, is dependent on uh, Japanese imports for about 90% of these chemicals. So we've already seen that prices of memory chips starting to go up. And there's a, um, uh, an expectation that that these costs could spread not just within um, telecommunications and, and computers, but could actually move into automobi- uh, uh, automotive sector and potentially food and beverages as well. Uh, so there is a big implication. So Japan really ratcheted up the tensions. It's also threatened to take South Korea off its white paper, which is essentially a list of uh, countries that Japan gives preferential treatment to around trade. So if South Korea is taken off the white paper, it will have much more difficult times getting... Um, exports that Japan deems sensitive or that Japan just simply wants, again, to kind of slow down for the sake of having some sort of foreign policy implication.
0: Sounds a little bit familiar to us here in Canada. Yeah, <laughs> uh, it, and it's, it's
1: disturbing. So the, the play that the Abe administration is, is taken out of its playbooks, this reference to national security around export controls is very much in line with what President Trump has been doing. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I think it's it's a concern because we are seeing another major economy securitizing trade and using trade. Uh, and trade exports as a tool of foreign policy. Now, from the Japanese perspective, this is because uh, it claims the South Koreans aren't doing enough to make sure these chemicals aren't making their way into North Korea. Mm. But in terms of open source evidence that this is happening, um, I haven't seen anything. Of course, there's always the the possibility that there's classified information that suggests this. But again, national security has become a very big catch-all topic to address these, these trade issues.
0: Yeah, it's been an interesting development with implications, of course, for us here in Canada with our partner to the South, How do the respective stances taken by the South Korean and Japanese governments play among the populations in each country?
1: So the identity issue in South Korea in particular is very deep. Um, Many of the proponents for um, further compensation for uh, the people that were involved in either sexual slavery or, or forced labor are the younger generations, and they're being taught in school and through textbooks that uh, Japan was an aggressor, that Japan has never properly apologized, that Japan inherently has a militaristic society and mindset. So those are, um, I think, very deeply rooted within uh, a South Korean psyche, or at least the way that it's introduced in, in education. Um, when you do go into any uh, South Korean ministry, for example, there's always a live feed of the Dokdo Islands uh, to show that uh, South Korea has control over them. Yeah. Again, this is an island that it, it disputes with Japan. And when you ask them why they show that that live feed, they just say, "Oh, it's it's a nice island." Uh, but there are obviously identity and politics issues there. Uh, from the Japan side, there's an increasing sense that it's it's just a continued victim um, from a, a regional approach that is using its uh, wartime past as an excuse. to isolate it and as an opportunity to to paint uh, Japan as inherently aggressive. So right now, I think that there is a huge support for the hard line that the uh, Abe administration is taking towards South Korea. Something like 90% of uh, Japanese public see um, a stronger approach as desirable. It seems that this issue uh, had an impact on the current elections for the upper house in Japan, where Abe's uh, ruling coalition won a majority. A lot of Japanese people that were questioned about why they voted for Abe's r- ruling coalition parties and, the, and those individuals that ran to represent his party was because they felt that the prime minister had taken an appropriate strong stance towards South Korea.
0: Interesting. What about the implications within the region, either economically or from a political stability perspective?
1: So there's always been um, a sense of of. Um, Disappointment that these issues have become such a a sticking point for closer relations between Japan and South Korea. Again, on paper, they they have every reason to be closer uh, allies or partners. Uh, They share many, many concerns. Um, So the fact that they continue to have these identity issues play such a a predominant role in the way that they think about one another and that this is preventing them from becoming closer politically is, I think, incredibly unfortunate for Northeast Asia's overall kind of strategic stability environment. I mean, these two countries really do need to be working together on issues. Uh, around North Korea, for example, around um, China's growing influence. They both have shared concerns over the role that China is going to play in Northeast Asia. There's opportunities for them to engage with China. A long time they've talked about trilateralism between Japan, South Korea, and China. Mm. But these two countries can't even really have good bilateral relationships. So how can they enter into trilateralism? And of course, the the United States would love to see greater trilateralism from its perspective on military issues with, with its two allied partners.
0: Might we see U.S. engagement or more U.S. engagement in resolving this issue? Is there a role for the United States to play?
1: So there are prominent people in the United States that have worked in past administrations that are arguing that the Trump administration should take a more active role. I don't think there's a demand signal coming from certainly Japan and probably not South Korea at this point uh, to have US involvement. In many ways, it would be like asking Japan to come and be involved in the USMCA negotiations. (laughs) It's just simply not necessarily appropriate or or helpful for a third party to come in at this point. But those arguments are being made in the United States. The United States still sees itself probably as the only state that could mediate um, some sort of dispute between these two states. But I don't think that Japan or South Korea are looking for the United States to play that role.
0: Could this issue between both countries result in any complications or challenges here in Canada where we're engaged in free trade agreements with both countries?
1: I think there's always going to be pressure um, from South Korea and Japan on its uh, external partners to take their positions, to understand their positions. Um, And I think no matter what you do in these positions, you're going to end up alienating one of those partners. Mm-hmm. It's very difficult to take one side over the other. So it's, I think, very important for Canada to have neutrality in these issues and to understand that they are identity driven. They are um, very much about a hist- a historical senses of grievance that from, from many sides feel unaddressed. So I think that you need to wade carefully into these waters as, a, as a, an outsider. An outside state. Um, that said, I think you know they're both uh, very vibrant democracies. Uh, we have very close economic relationships with both states, and we should we should continue to pursue those and make sure that we can do what what we can to to kind of soothe relations where, where possible.
0: Jeff it's always a pleasure having you on. Thanks for coming on the show. Thank you so much. That's Jeff Reeves, Vice President of Research at the Asia Pacific Foundation of Canada. That's it for our show. Thanks for listening to BIV today. You can get notified of new episodes by subscribing to us on iTunes or on Stitcher. You can also listen to all of our shows over at biv.com slash audio. For more business news, visit biv.com. I'm Haley Wooden. Thanks again for listening.